in John chapter 17. We are finishing this morning uh, the upper room discourse that we began in the end of August where Jesus has been teaching his disciples many things on the night he's betrayed before he's crucified. And uh, next week, uh, we'll be, I'll be preaching from the Psalms on gratitude. And uh, we're actually going to have a church planner here, Jay Stovall and his wife Tiffany and family. They're going to share a little bit about what God's leading them to do in planning a church across town. We want to support them in that. Uh, and then it's Christmas, you guys. It's like, I mean, the stores have already told you it's Christmas, but it's Christmas. Advent is here, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapters 1 and 2 and the birth narrative there as we head into the, the Christmas time. Um, but this morning, we're looking at John chapter 17, and as you're opening up there, I, I, want you to a- I want to ask you this question. What does God want for you? What does God want for you? I mean, every single day, I mean, this week, you've been, bomba- you've been bombarded like time and time again, countless times every day with the question, what do you want? People are asking you that all the time. Well, what do you want? What do you want? I mean, obvious places are where you're in line at Chipotle or wherever. People says, what would you like? Or when you're sitting around with some friends and you turn on the TV, what do you want to watch? You know, like, what do you want? What do you want? Advertisements after advertisements, what do you want? But, but what does Jesus want for you? Have you ever really seriously asked that question? Uh, the prayer that we're looking at in John 17 is one of the most treasured parts of the Bible, and people have called it historically the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And the reason for that is they've noticed the pattern by which Jesus prays. In the Old Testament, the high priest would enter the temple and they would pray first for themselves. Then they would pray for the other priests that were in their company. But then they would pray for God's people, the nation of Israel. And here, Jesus, we looked at last week, that he begins this prayer in John 17, he prays for himself. He prays for glory. We looked at that. Today, we see that he turns and he shifts and he prays for his 11 disciples. But then he prays for you. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus prays for you. He prayed for you the night before he died. You thought about that? I mean, just think, if, if after this worship gathering, you're out on the patio or something, and you're, you're talking to somebody, you're, there's small talk you're having, you know, we all have small talk on Sundays, and uh, you're saying, hey, how was your weekend? And they said to you, oh, it was great, I went, I went and had dinner on Friday night in Pasadena, and uh, with so much of different people, and so-and-so was there. And so-and-so is a person that you're acquaintances with, but you really admire them, Okay. You would really love to be better friends with them. You care about them. You, you really respect them. And they say, yeah, so-and-so was there. And you're like, so-and-so was there? And they're like, yeah, so-and-so was there. And uh, so-and-so was talking, and so-and-so brought your name up, right? They talked about you. And, and yeah, then I ordered the chicken, and, you know, we had dessert, and then we went to a movie. And, and then on Saturday, I mean, if you were courage, you'd be like, wait, I'm sorry. Can we back up for a second? So-and-so brought me up, <laughs> right? Well, what did so-and-so say about me? Right? You, would, you would be curious, right? I mean, you want to be in better terms of relationship with this person. You would care what they, they want for you, what they think about you, right? Jesus, before he dies, brings you up. Have you thought about that? Would you want to know what he said about you? Well, what a privilege we have because we learned this morning what he prayed for us, what he wants for us. And the first thing we learn is in verses 9 through 16, his prayer is that we'd be kept. 
is that you'd be kept. Is that you'd be kept. Look in verse 9 with me. I am praying for them. So this is where Jesus shifts to actually begin to pray for the 11 disciples. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, which is a reference to Judas. We saw that in chapter 13. Uh, Except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I don't know if you've picked up on it, but there's a significant phrase that Jesus continues to repeat in this prayer. I don't know if you've noticed it. It's kind of subtle, but it actually starts up in verse 2. What does he say? Right, to all whom you have given him. Then we see in verse 6, whom you gave me. Verse 6 again, you gave them to me. Verse 7, you have given me. Verse 8, you gave me. Verse 9, whom you have given me. Verse 11, you have given me. Verse 12, you have given me. And then there's radio silence until the very end when Jesus turns and he prays for you. What does it say in verse 24? Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. He's talking about you. Right, what's the phrase? What's gift language? Right? God the Father has given Jesus the Son something. What is it? It's people. It's people. Nine times in this prayer. The disciples primarily, but that trickles down to you in verse 24. It's the same prayer, whom you have given me. What this is meaning is that there's people all over the world and throughout the history of the world that are a part of the world, right? Meaning they don't believe in God. They reject Jesus. They don't give their life to him, right? They don't submit to him as their Lord and Savior, you know? Right? They don't believe in him. But there are people who God has worked in their life. God has by the power of the Spirit, just open their eyes, unplug their ears, and cause them to see the truth of who Jesus is and the glory of Jesus. People who've believed that Jesus was sent into the world to save and to rule them. Right? Uh, Romans says, everybody, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. So if you're here this morning and you, are, you have not done that, if you do not know Jesus in this way as your Savior and Lord, the Bible's telling you that you can just call on his name and be saved. That you could say, I need to be forgiven. I need to be saved. I need help. Would you save me? Would you rule me? Would you be my king? If you do that, if you call upon his name, you will be saved. This could be you this morning. All you have to do is call upon him. And if you do that, or if you have done that, we are told here that you are given to Jesus. It's not even Christmas yet, but we're already talking about presents, right? 
The Father gives Jesus a present and it's people. This is really important to realize when you're thinking about Jesus' prayer for you here. Because what's his prayer is that those people would be kept. That's what he says, keep them. Look at verse 12. You have the reason for this prayer. Jesus has been with these guys. He's kept them. He's protected them. He's guarded them. He's cherished them, he says. We are told that, that in verse 12, one has been lost, but it wasn't because of Jesus. Jesus didn't fail at keeping Judas. We were told that this was prophesied for centuries that, that there would be one that would know Jesus and would betray him and Jesus would then be crucified and through him being crucified, it would bring about the salvation of the world. So he didn't fail at keeping Judas. He's done his job. He's succeeded. And so in verse 11, where this prayer actually starts, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. This is why he's praying this prayer. I'm leaving I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to ascend. Where Jesus is this morning, he's sitting on his throne, ruling the universe. He's on the throne. He says, I'm not going to be with them physically, so keep them, Father. Keep them. I've kept them. Keep them. Those who are saved, those who believe, don't, don't let them be lost, that they would make it to the end. Why? Well, because they're going to face opposition. They're going to be tempted to stray that they will not be taken out of the world because look at what he says. This is where we get this phrase, in the world, not of the world. He says they're going to be in the world, but they are not of the world. They're in it, but they're not of it. And while you're in it, you will be tempted by the, the spells, the allures, the temptations of the world, which is why he says what? Not just keep them in your name, verse 11, but keep them from evil, verse 15. This is telling you what he's talking about, that you wouldn't be lost, that you wouldn't get swept away by the philosophies, by the enticements, by the whatevers of the world, but that you'd be kept by the Father in his name. He's praying for you this, not to walk away, but to realize that you live under a different name. You have a different address. Uh, years ago, um, when my son Gus was three years old, he got lost in a Kohl's department store, okay? And uh, I wasn't there, but Gus, um, I don't know if you know Gus very well, when he was three, he lived up to his name Gus, okay? He like, uh, he didn't have his front teeth, you know, he, you know, he, the, when he talked, it was like very lispy, you know, and uh, he was really adorable and chubby and, oh man, just an d- adorable little boy, okay? But he gets lost in a department store. Two really sweet ladies find him and they look at him and, and they realize he's lost and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, like, what's your name? And uh, we called him Gussie. And so uh, he said Gussie over and over again. But the way it sounded, they thought his name was Jesse. Okay, they thought his name was Jesse. And so finally, though, they figured out who Elizabeth was and they, they brought him back to my wife, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was like, oh, I'm so sorry, buddy. You know, that kind of thing. And she was trying to help him. And she goes, buddy, next time this happens, because there'll be a next time for sure, right? The next time this happens, you know, tell them my name. Tell them my name because you belong to me. And so he, she goes, buddy, what's my name? And he goes, Mommy. And uh, he, she's like, no, no, it's not mommy. What's my other name? And he goes, babe. Seriously. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, 
That was it. She didn't even, he didn't even know her real name, right? Because all he knows her by is the names that she, he, she, he hears, right? Mommy and I learned then, I guess I call Elizabeth babe. I didn't realize how much I called her babe, but um, she's babe, right? So, um, but we know ourselves by our names, right? We know ourselves by what people call us and she's wanting him to remember her name. Why? So that he knows when he's wandered, when he's lost, who he belongs to that he would be kept in her name. Guys, if you've come to faith in Jesus, if you believe he was sent by God into this world to save you and rule you, he knows your name. Like in heaven right now, if someone was like, hey, Jesus, do you know Melody? But like, oh, I know Melody. Right? Do you know Jess? I know Jess. Right, do you know Steve? I know Steve. Right? God knows your name. And he wants you to know his. That you wouldn't wander through all the different temptations and allures of this world because you'd be kept from that and kept in his name. You are in this world but not of it. Maybe just to, to drive this point home because it's so important. Imagine that you were looking for a couch for your living room. Okay? You're looking for a couch for your living room and you're scrolling on your phone, you're looking at different stores, and you finally found the couch, and you realize it's over at Citrus Plaza or Mountain Grove Plaza or something, and you show up at the store, and you walk in, and there's the couch. You're like, oh my gosh, it's actually in stock, even though it said it was, right? And you walk over to the couch, and on the couch is a label that says reserved. It says already sold, and it has someone's name on it. What do you do? Do you walk over to the employee and go, I want this couch? Well, no, because you know if you do that, they're going to say, sorry, someone's already paid for it. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to them. What's wrong? That couch is in the store, but it's not of the store, right? The store doesn't own it, right? Someone's going to come and pick it up one day because it belongs to them. The same is true for you. The Father's name is imprinted upon you. Even though you're in the world, you are not of this world. You belong to God, Jesus has purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation with his own blood. No one can take that from him. This is what he prays for, that you would be kept. But secondly, he prays that we would be holy. Look in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You probably don't use the word sanctify in your normal conversations, and, but, but it's an important word. It, it, if I could say it this way, it just means to become like Jesus. And the reason I say that is because Scripture teaches us that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the ultimate imago Dei. Right, the, the one made in the image of God. He's perfect in every way. He is God. And so to sanctify you, because we were made in the image of God, but our image is tarnished because we sin. And so God has done a work where he's justified you at the cross. But now he's going to continue to do that work to make you more like Jesus. He's going to sanctify you. The word here is to be holy, to set apart. It's an Old Testament word. The priests and the temple and the furniture and the tools and the temple itself were to be set apart. They were to be holy, to be distinguishable from the rest of the world because the rest of the world has sin in it. So it's to be set apart, to be distinguished, to be different. This is the image. It's, it's sanctification. It's maturing. It's 
like a child. They're going to grow up and become an adult over time. And they will resemble the features of their family and their parents. Right? If you're, the Bible says this, that you are born again right, into a new family. And over time, you will resemble the family. Right? You, will, you will resemble the family. It's, it's growing up to look like Jesus. That's his prayer for you. So how? How will you grow? How will you mature? Well, verse 17 tells you the truth. And it's not ambiguous. Right? There's, a, there's a real clarity here to what the truth is. How can you know what the truth is? What does he say? Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Right? This is the thing, this is the means by which God sanctifies you, makes you holy, causes you to mature, causes you to grow up in Christ. Right? The, this is showing you something. The point of Scripture is not information, it's transformation. It's not just so you have more ideas, that you can explain things better or something, that you have more knowledge that you can cram in there. It's that you would be transformed. The Word of God is a transforming tool that God uses in your life. This is its purpose, which I think we've got to pay attention to because you'll meet people today, people who aren't even Christians, who will look at somebody like Jesus and, and they will say, I, I like Jesus, I think he's a pretty good person. And so I, I would like to become like him. I want to be a good person. But I don't like the Bible, right? It's, it's outdated, it's old, it's contradict, contradictory, or, you know, it, it just says some things that are just they're too hard to understand. Or Again, they're outdated, right? They're fictitious, they're exaggerated. You know, there's a few good things in there, and I'll pick up those things, but the Bible... I don't want that. But do you see what Jesus is saying? He is the one who says the word, all of it, the word that he trusted and he believed and he lived out. He said it's the word that actually will transform you. If you want to become like Jesus, you need the word. You don't just become like Jesus apart from the word. It's not information, it's transformation. I don't know where you're at this morning and... Maybe if you're being honest, the idea of becoming holy or being sanctified by the word, it just sounds kind of boring or dull or joyless. I mean, fill in the blank. You're like, that does not sound appealing to me at all. What I want you to see is like, if that's what you think Jesus is praying for you, that couldn't be further from the truth. You've misunderstood Jesus. Because look at what it says in verse 13. I have spoken these things into the world that they may have my joy. He wants you to have joy. He's telling you how to have joy. Real joy. So you guys, there is the greatest joy in holiness. There really is. For a multitude of reasons. I could think of many. I mean, for one, there's no damage control that you have to keep doing in your life. Right? You don't have to keep remembering who you are in one environment and who you are in another environment and making sure those environments don't cross-pollinate. Right? You don't have to like, have all these secrets going, I hope someone doesn't find out about this, about me. Right? There's no shame or condemnation that can keep being thrown into your face. Right? There is joy that is found in God and becoming more like Jesus because you're becoming more free from this world. There's joy because God is the most joyful. 
He's the happiest being in the entire universe, and he's sinned. He's never even done it once. Right? He's 100% sober, and he's the happiest being in the universe. God knows a thing about joy, and he is holy. See, we are lied to about sin. We think sin is going to lead us to joy. We're, we're told, just do it. There's the temptation that says, hey, you're frustrated? Just blow off some steam and let it rip for 10 minutes. You'll feel better. All right, you stressed out? Just click the link. All right, euphoria at your fingertips. All right, just leave your marriage. You'll be happier. All right, just pull, pull the slot or, you know, um, you know, just, just take a little bit more. You deserve it. Right, just scroll a little longer. Just let those people have it. Whatever it is, there's a temptation. There's an allure of sin, and it's promising you joy, but it's a lie because what happens? After the 10 minutes is over, how do you feel? When you wake up the next day, how do you feel? Do you wake up the next day, you're like, man, I feel so alive. I feel so free. That was great. I'm a better person now. No, you've realized again that you were lied to. You were lied to. Guys, Jesus is after your joy. And so he prays for it. But it's probably not in the way you thought about it. He's praying that you would be holy. He's praying that you would be holy. He's getting you ready for heaven, which is where you will experience the ultimate holiness, glory where he is. Uh, This quote is always really resonated with me in a convicting way. It's by J.C. Ryle. He wrote this book called Holiness. And I thought I'd read it to you. He says, even if you could enter heaven without holiness, what would you do? What joy would you feel there? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their character is not your character. What they love, you do not love. If you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with him forever? If worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it'll thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure? You would not be happy there if you are not holy here. Jesus is after your joy. He has set you apart to be different. Lastly, though, we learn in Jesus' prayer what he wants for us is not only we be kept and experience this transformation in isolation, but in community. Because what does he pray? That we would be unified. That we would be unified. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that we may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. 
Well, it's very clear here what Jesus wants for us. It is that we would express our oneness. That we would be unified, to be one. Not that we would try to become unified, but that we would express our unity. Right? The oneness that we have. We would, and we would embody that. That people could look at it and go, oh yeah, they're, they're unified. Right? To, to reveal what's already there because he's already purchased our unity with his own blood. Right? So, so how is this achieved? Like, how do you become a part of this oneness? Well, Jesus says in verse 20 that those who will believe in me through their word. So again, you hear the gospel, the good news, and you call upon the name of the Lord and you're saved. And now you're not just sent off on your own island with Jesus. You are brought into a family. There is a oneness that's achieved. We are one. I mean, look at all this location language. I and you, you and me, they and us. You and I who have believed, we're not just apart from everybody else. We're with everybody else. To be fair, I think it's a really hard idea to get our minds around. It kind of stretches our brains a little bit. When you're talking about the Trinity and in him and in, you know, you're like, whoa, you know, your mind is like blowing up, you know, a little bit. When you get around this kind of idea, it's hard. I mean, what does this really even mean to be in Christ, to be in anyone for that matter? I mean, this is location language, isn't it? I mean, I'll be honest with you. If someone tells me I follow Christ, I get that. I know what that means. If someone says they're under Christ, not as common, but I understand. I know know what it's like to be under someone's authority. Saved by Christ, got it. Inspired by Jesus, check, right? These all make sense. These are concepts we understand, right? Like leader, savior, Lord, but in Christ, that's like a, like a location kind of thing. Like I'm in Redlands right now. I'm in the worship center at Pathway. That makes sense. Right, so how does this work? I think it's an unusual way to think about Jesus, and we don't think about it very much, but it's a really important thing to understand. So I've, I tried to think this is the best I could come up with to try to help you understand what Jesus is talking about here. So I want you to imagine yourself that you're at the airport today. You're in Ontario, and uh, you're going to fly to Maui. Congratulations, it's a good day, okay? You want to be in Maui, sunny Maui is where you want to be, and you're about to board the plane, okay? What relationship do you have to have with the plane at that point in your life? What relationship do you have to have with the plane? Would it help to be under the plane? You know, to submit to the plane's authority or something, you know, that kind of thing. Probably not, right? Would it help to be inspired by the plane? You stand by the window and you watch it fly off in the distance and you kind of whisper to yourself, I hope to do that someday too, right? Would that help? Or or would you, you know, resonate with following the plane? Like you you really watch it fly and you're taking notes and you're like, hey, it was kind of this direction and and then you begin to head off after it takes off. You you can't see anymore. You're going to follow the plane. Is that going to help you? No. What relationship do you have to have with the plane? It doesn't help to be behind it or inspired by it or under it. You need to be in it, right? You need to be in the plane. Why? Because by being in the plane... What happens to the plane happens to you. So if someone says, did you make it to Maui? That question is answered by the larger question, did the plane make it to Maui? If the plane made it to Maui and you were on the plane, congratulations, you are in Maui. Right? Do we see how this works? 
right? You see the implication. If I'm on the plane and you're on the plane, and you're on the plane and you're on the plane and we're all on the plane, right? And believers at the river are on the plane and Emmaus are on the plane and Restoration are on the plane and Trinity are on the plane and you know, believers in Los Angeles and New York City and Louisiana and Turkey and Malaysia, we're all on the plane. That's what Jesus is saying. If we're all on the plane and there isn't another plane, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if there's no other plane, if we don't just have our own private Jesus jets that we get into and fly around and do what we want, but we're on the plane and Jesus has done something that now we experience and it's headed somewhere and we're all going to experience that together. Do you see how this works? What happens to Jesus happens to us. You are in Christ. You will be kept. He will see to it that it happens. You will mature. Right? This this is it. We are something. And now that something is to be lived out in a way that's visible to this world. We're not trying to make it so. It is true. There's a lot at stake here, you guys. Jesus says there's a lot at stake because what does it say in verse 21? That we would be one so that the world would believe that the gospel is true. There's a lot at stake here so that the world may believe that Jesus was sent. Verse 23, that they may be perfectly one so that you may know that, that they may know that you sent me into the world. Our unity is proof that the gospel is true. I'm not exaggerating that. Jesus says it. That our displaying of our unity is proof that the gospel is true. And so if we live our lives acting like we have our private own Jesus jets, the world will not see the truth of this gospel. I mean, if we were grabbing lunch... Okay, and you were an hour late, and you came in, and I said, "Hey, why are you an hour late?" Okay, I'm not confrontational. I'd probably just be like, "Oh, no worries, we're good, right?" But let's just say I said, "Hey, um, you know, why are you an hour late?" And you said, oh, "I've been soaking my hands in warm water for an hour." I would say that's really weird. Okay, but then I would probably say, "Well, maybe not probably, but let's just say I said, show me your hands," and you showed me your hands, and they were not pruny at all. Am I going to believe that you're being truthful? No. If you soak your hands in warm water for an hour, they will be pruny. Right? We know how this works. Right? Do you think that if we said to the world, we are saved, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we have God as our Father, and we live in Him, He is a Trinity, and we live and move and have our being in this God, and He is the vine, and we are the branches, and they said to us, well, then show us your relationships. And we just slandered each other. And we gossiped about each other. And we hated one another. What are they going to think? That's probably not true. If we say to the world, we are forgiven by God, and yet we can't even forgive each other, If we say, oh man, God's grace has just overwhelmed my life, but I'm not gracious to anybody else. If we're like, oh, the love of God just 
fills and floods my heart, but I don't love you? If we say, I've been reconciled to God, but I'm not reconciled to you, what's the world going to think? Let me ask you, is there somebody in your life that you are divided against that Jesus has already united you to? Is there somebody in your life that you've taken that stand? You've, you've really talked some bad stuff about him. You've gossiped about him. You hate them. You want nothing to do with them. You're like, man, I got my Jesus jet and you 12 people can come on it, but you got to find your own, right? Is there somebody that you are divided against that Jesus has already united you to? Guys, if we want to be a witness in our community, if we want the gospel to go forward in Redlands and to the ends of this earth, Jesus is saying that our unity and our display of that unity is proof that what we're saying is even true. I mean, maybe you've been hurt by someone or maybe you have hurt someone and you're just holding on to it. And you're like, I can't forgive them. Or maybe someone, you finally humbled yourself and you said, I messed up, I, would you forgive me? But you as the offended person is like, I will not forgive them. Why? Because we know that if you forgive somebody, that means that you have to absolve that debt. And so holding on to it, you think I'm making them pay for it. But we must remember the gospel, the message that we believe that brought us together in the first place. We remember that Jesus humbled himself when he was the only person in the universe who never needed to ask for forgiveness for anything. And yet he humbled himself and he sacrificed himself for you to forgive you. Why? Not just to say we're good now, but so that we could be in relationship with him. He did it for the relationship. So if he's united himself to you, and he's united himself to that other person that you're divided against. What do you think it'll take to see a movement of God in our city and in our world? What do you think it'll take? I think there's many thoughts, many good ideas right now. But Jesus says it's, it's how we live together. It's how we love one another and I wonder how many people would even come through our doors on a Sunday and maybe they're here with a friend or family member and they've, they hate the church. You know, they hate Christianity. It stands for everything that they're opposed against. But wouldn't it be amazing if they came in here and they said, man, how is it that these people are against everything that I am for? Yet somehow they are unified. They love one another. That is something that I don't find in this world. See, Jesus is talking about a unity that is seen. It's visible, the gospel, if I could say it this way, has a melody. It plays a tune. And our lives can often be off key. Like our, our worship team is amazing. And if, if they ever did, someone just does the wrong chord, you feel it. You're like, oh, what happened? You know, like even if you're not musical, you hear someone play the wrong chord, it gives you a weird dissonance, like a weird resonance. And we do that all the time. We play off key. We play out of tune. We play a different melody when we're on our little Jesus jets. But we got to be tuned back up to the melody. Let me close with this. A.W. Tozer talks about this, that we need to be tuned. 
He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. We need to be tuned. And we don't become tuned by being on it, like trying to be unified. We're tuned when we are tuned to Christ. When we're tuned to verse 24 that says, my prayer is that they would be with me where I am to see my glory. When we're tuned to his glory. When we sing out of tune, he wants to tune us back. Guys, this is what Jesus wants for you. Do you want it? What do you want? I'll ask you what the world says. What do you want? Do you want this? This is what he wants. Well, he paid for it with his own blood. We've called this series, we're closing it today, Greater Things, and I think this is it. This is the greater things. It's this. It sums up the whole teaching. Chapter 13, Jesus gets down and he humbles himself and he serves and washes their feet. We are called to humbly serve one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you, right after that. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. There's only one plane. He says, I'm going to send the spirit which will convict your heart. It causes us to go, man, I screwed up. Would you forgive me? He tells us to be prepared that we are going to receive opposition in this world because we are in the world but not of the world. He tells us in the midst of your sorrow, it will be turned to joy because he has overcome the world, and here he prays, keep them. Mature them. And unify them. So that the world would know that I really am the son. This is a greater thing, you guys. In a divided world, what a greater thing this is. Let's pray. Oh God, this morning as we come to you, I pray that we'd come to you with open hearts, open hands. And Lord, if there is somebody or a people, group of people or something that we are divided against, would you just, Holy Spirit, reveal that to us now? Would you help us humble ourselves and pursue reconciliation? How will we just entrust ourselves to you? Would we want what you want, Lord Jesus, no matter what the cost is on our behalf, knowing that you've paid the ultimate cost. So we look to you. We look to your humility, your glory. How would you tune us to you and your will for our lives this morning? We pray these things in Christ's name.